Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, February 19th, 2024. On the show today, news, including our best guess as to when Tiana's Bayou Adventure will open, plus surveys and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Disney Imagineer Jim Schul joins us to explain how to refurbish an attraction that's in the middle of an operating theme park. Let's get started by bringing in the man who's got 99 problems, and all of them are Luft balloons. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> Lenny is, of course, referring to that hit song from Nina, the West German band uh, from 83, uh, 99 Luft balloons. Though, uh, to be fair, folks in the United States and the UK probably know the English version better, 99 Red Balloons, which Nina re-recorded in 84 which became a hit all over again but did you know len this song is based on something that actually happened in the united states in 1973 there have been numerous uh nuclear war scares on both sides <laughs> well, uh, of this which which one was this because well, I, I have trouble remembering all of them all right so this is the more innocent version this is five high school students decided to prank the city of las vegas so they they, they bought a hundred mylar balloons and tied them together and then dangled a ro lit road flare off of this thing and and the thing is that as they were sending it aloft one balloon got away so that's the 99 balloons and the interesting thing is that this totally freaked out the the folks over at red rock you know they looked up and legitimately saw the flare reflected in the mylar balloons and thought ufo so, you know, I, I, I don't know how we then got to nuclear, you know, nuclear war. But 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 again, actually based on on something real that happened that that Nina learned about and decided to write a song about. I love that the first response when presented with something unknown is let's nuke it. <laughs> like, let, let us let us actually launch nuclear weapons to take care of whatever this thing is that we don't know. Like, that's that's a totally normal and rational response to the unknown, right? Well, it, it, it was the <laughs> 80s, all right? I tell Hannah this all the time, and I'm like, you don't know what it was like living living under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation. It was really a thing. Question is, did Nina have ever, did Nina ever get a, a Grammy? And in this case, was it taken away? I don't know if she did. It was a great song. Did you, do you guys know, though, that uh, apparently the German version, the, the words in the German version are different? than the words in the English version. Like, the German version is much darker. It is. Which, but, but, I mean, let's face I, it, if you're, if you're in Germany in the 80s, it's not going to be a happy, uplifting song. Well, I think, you know, again, West Germany. But, but the, other thing, the other thing worth noting here is that supposedly one of the reasons they changed the words and made them lighter, funnier, is that they were going to make the video for MTV. And so it was like, you know, if you want airplay, maybe play down the Holocaust, okay? Yeah, I, I listened to that song quite often when I was living in Germany. And I'll tell you, it's a much slower, more solemn yeah. dirge of a song yeah. than you have the happy one we have in America. Also, if you guys have seen uh, Deutschland 83, the uh, the TV series, which is fantastic if you haven't seen it, uh, Laurel and I sat down to watch, you know, the very first episode of the very first season and, and you know, the, the promo is, you know, it's uh, it's East Germany during the Cold War and I'm like, I swear to God, if they're playing 99 Luft balloons. Like, this will be my favorite show of all time. Literally, the very first scene, guys. <laughs> the very first scene. I'm like, these people know me. This, this show is made for me. So if you, guys, if you guys haven't seen it, highly recommended. Deutschland 83. All right. And uh, you guys heard on our show, uh, I would like to introduce a special guest. It's Jim Schul, who is most recently the executive creative director of Walt Disney Imagineering, with design credits including everything from Toy Story Land to the cool ship Coca-Cola stand in Tomorrowland and the Magic Kingdom. Honest to God, Jim, one of your best. I walked through it a couple of times this weekend. And, and here's, here's why I think it's, it's one of the best. When I am in Tomorrowland and I need to get to Fantasyland and I have the choice between walking through the cool ship and walking around it, I always go through it. And if, if there's no better testament to design than I want to walk through this building. I can't tell you how many times that someone comes up to me and says, wasn't this taken from the flight of the navigator? And then I always have to go into my long, long exp speech that no, 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 no. I mean, Ahab had his whale and I have my <laughs> <That's> school <laughs> ship. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if I duck out during the show, I'm going to be sharpening my har harpoon somewhere. All right. There you go. There you go. 
That reminds me, uh, uh, I actually have a show opening for National Librarian Day where I encourage everyone to go into the library and ask for a book about a guy with who's obsessed with one very specific whale. <laughs> hmm. Now I can't use that opening, but honest to God, it's in the show notes. You guys can scroll okay. up and see it. Okay. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and while you're doing that, let me do a quick shout out to our subscribers. Uh, over at patreon.com slash Jim Hill Media, including Everett Mills, Tamir Rogson, Steve Fournier, Philip Moss, Ian Sr., and Cindy Dance to Disney. Jim and Jim, this is the Disney culinary team who was asked to come up with a nutritious breakfast that avoided carbs, fried foods, and added sugar. Then after three sleepless nights in the kitchen, that all started to sound pretty good, so they threw some bananas in and a side of coffee, and that's how we got the Polynesian Resort's Tonga Toast. True story. If you guys, yeah, if you guys go to the show notes, I actually linked the recipe for Tonga Toast into that. And I mentioned that because I ate it yesterday for breakfast and it was delightful. <laughs> Have you guys ever had spiced Spam? Uh, I got that as a side yes, and it was delightful. Yes. If you go to China or Japan, you'll find all kinds of Spams on mm. the menu. And have you ever had banana Spam? No. no. Because I have. Tell me. No, no. I, 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 I would say pick item B instead <laughs> when you get to Not it. your first choice? All right, fair, fair. Not the first choice. All right, guys, let's go on to the news here. Folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring Plans helps you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, Disney started to narrow down the opening time window for Tiana's Bayou Adventure, saying last week that the new ride would open in summer 2024. Technically, that's around June 21st to September 21st. It could be as early as Memorial Day, which Disney sometimes treats as the unofficial start of summer. Uh, so in order to, to narrow that down, I went back and looked at how long the time was for rides that have recently opened in Walt Disney World from the time the first set of ride vehicles started on the track to opening day. Because the first set of ride vehicles also went down Tiana's Bio Adventure last week in Walt Disney World. All right. So the first Tron ride vehicles ran through the track around March 18th, 2022. And the ride opened April 4th, 2023. So that was 13 months of testing. Guardians of the Galaxy was 18 months, but okay, pandemic. Seven Doors Mine Train did its first drop test around mid-September 2013. And the ride opened 18, eight months later in May of 2020, uh, 2014. Then Slinky Dog Dash was about nine months. Our friend Eagle Scout 610 noted that the conversion of Maelstrom to Frozen Ever After was 27 months and also included track changes. So these were all new construction with the exception of uh, Maelstrom. Tiana's is built on a platform that's been tested for decades, so we might know more about how that works. So maybe from eight months to five or six, that would put the opening in July or August. But I'm, I'm hesitant to say it's going to be shorter than that because Splash Mountain was averaging more than 90 minutes of downtime per day in the last six months of 2022. And I would expect that Disney would take the uh, opportunity to address that downtime during this refurb. Uh, Jim Scholl, any insight here? You know, it's an interesting question, but I think the reality is, you know, what you're just talking about is the commonality was those were all new rides. Yeah, yeah. And that's the biggest thing. There are three components to any new attraction. There's going to be the facility, there's going to be the show that goes inside the facility, and then there's going to be the ride system. Now, the ride system, a new ride system, has to be installed, and then it has to be what's called commissioning. And that's the test and adjust. I mean, we've all stood outside of a ride and watched those water dummies going around. And, um, you know, that takes the time. Whereas in the case of transforming Splash Mountain to Tatiana, well, they already have an existing ride system and it's been tested. Now, obviously, they're going to have to do some tweaks and adjustments because, you know, it's the ride has been down for several months and it's going to have to come back up and be recertified for safety. But essentially... What they're doing is reusing an existing, already proven, already commissioned ride system. And by reusing it, that shaves months off of, of a project schedule. So the, for the most recently uh, opened rides, I think uh, eight or nine months is the shortest time frame from like the first drop test to ride opening. How much do you think that would shave off? A couple months? Oh, in the case of this, I'd say it's probably three to four months. Three to four months. Okay, so any, so we could be looking at anywhere from five to six months from now, which would put it July or August, mid-July to maybe late August. Okay, that's still definitely within the middle of summer, so okay, we'll see. Yeah, and, and, and I would look to say that, I mean, given everything that's happened, I would imagine that once they made the announcement in Disney World that they're going to bring it in in summer, 
that we should expect to see it in summer. Now, summer may be September, the last day of September, or the first day of fall, or the, you know. But you know, summer, I would hold them to. Okay, just one quick question here, because face it, I mean, it, you know, the 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 ride vehicle, as far as we know, is going to follow the exact same path. We haven't heard anything to the effect of what happened with Frozen Ever After, you know, over at Epcot. But won't they still have to do, don't they call it the envelope test, the notion of, you know, I mean, face it, we're going to be traveling through new show scenes with new props and that sort of thing. Aren't they going to have to, to test to make sure that, you know, none of these are, are grabbable or, or in the, the, the guest space? Well, absolutely. But that's why, you know, the ride gods invented nighttime when the parks are closed. And that's when they would put the ride envelope on the ride vehicle in this case, the log and run it around the ride circuit to make sure that nothing touched or interfered. Now, there's also, again, the grab envelope, which is the, you know, less than responsible guest who leans way, way out of the vehicle beyond the point that they should to grab things. So they're really those two tests. One is the normal ride reach envelope. And the second one is the uncooperative guest reach envelope. And they'll test both. And again, they probably tested them both during the nighttime when we weren't around to watch. You mentioned the uh, the uncooperative guest. I was uh, I was standing out in front of Tron, trying to film some family members who were on it and you know, waiting for other cars to or trains to go by. The number of people who try and stand up or, you know, lean really far back and 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 like open their arms spread their arms and stuff, like they're trying to go woo, like they're flying, like that seems to be very problematic and not at all what what the ride safety system was designed for. Like a lot of people that are really pushing the envelope on, on, on what they're doing there. I, I, I got to think that that's not a great idea. Well, I would not disagree with you on that one, Mr. Testa. But again, you know, the recently in, in Paris, uh, there was this uh, a guest with her children and she took them off automatically, you know, of her own volition, uh, you know, crossing the flume, taking them onto the sets of It's a Small World. <sighs> so, no, people do all sorts of interesting things given the right motivation. All right, guys, one, uh, one more quick thing about uh, Tiana's bio-adventure opening. Do we think it's going to open with both virtual queues and individual lightning lane? I think mm. it, the reason why I think virtual queues is, you know, anytime a new ride opens, it could have unexpected downtime. Virtual queues um, get around the problem of standby waits and things like that. And then individual lightning lane just makes sense because it's a new ride and that's the way to make money. Like, I think individual lightning lane is a gimme. The virtual queue thing is what I have questions about. Okay, I would say absolutely with the latter and and the former. It would be interesting to see how soon uh, the virtual queues were up and running. You know, uh, after it opened. My only question about individual lightning lane is the park already has two individual lightning lane attractions in Seven Dwarfs Mine Train and Tron. I don't think it's going to go to three because that would be uh, a bad publicity um, thing. So. My guess is Seven Doors Mine Train would drop from individual lightning lane to, to Genie Plus once Tiana's bio-adventure opens. We'll see. We'll see what happens. That's my guess. Also, I think this might be the opportunity for Disney to roll out the Genie Plus changes we've all been hearing about, where they go to a tiered system uh, and, uh, and and make some other uh, updates to it. I, that might be the thing that they're waiting for there. I'm not sure I understood the system as it exists, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll sit you tight for the okay. new one. You know, if you don't understand this one, just wait till the next one. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> okay. All right, other Disney news is I was running around the parks this weekend for you transportation nerds. Disney started running a new bus design, and the big change in the new model is room for three ECVs with faster load and unload times for those ECVs. So initial reviews on these seem to be super positive. I'm excited to see how they play out. Let me know if you guys uh, get on one, what it's like. Also, I got to give a special shout out to Skipper Maddie over at Jungle Cruise in the Magic Kingdom. We did a late night cruise with her on Friday night, and she was hysterical, like jokes that I had never heard before. Her spiel was tight. I sent in a cast compliment. It was great. Good show, Skipper Maddie. Last little bit, uh, Universal Orlando has updated its park app, and I mentioned that because if I heard correctly, the app update was supposed to include the ability to buy per ride Universal Express, sort of like individual lightning lane. So keep an eye out to see if that happens soon, too. On to surveys. Uh, Patty sent in a survey from Universal with this question, which I don't think we've seen Universal ask before. And the question is this. Compared to the same time last year, would you say your financial situation has worsened, stayed the same, or improved? So why would Universal ask that question? They were about halfway through the survey when this when this one got uh, got asked. <sighs> you know, it mm. it's, we are in such a complex 
financial situation as a country right now? I mean, you know, I, I don't know if you were following earlier this week where, uh, you know, the news that inflation had lessened but was still higher than Wall Street had had thought, and that caused yeah, it was the, uh, the rate was three. Yeah, yeah, the rate was three point one percent, and they were expecting like high twos. That's it yeah. exactly, and and that was enough to cause the stock market to fall at least temporarily, you know, five hundred points. I mean, you know, th- this whole notion of there is what people believe is what's going on with the economy and what's actually going on with the economy. So I'm, I have to admit, you know, the notion of has your financial situation worsened, stayed about the same, or improved? Uh, you know that that. You know, the whole notion of people who believe they they have less money or, or physically have less money uh, than they had the previous year aren't booking trips to Orlando or Anaheim. Yeah, it's, it, I'm, I'm wondering if this is Universal trying to get a gauge of, like, consumer sentiment on their own. Like, there's the, there's the, the U.S. government's Consumer Confidence Index, right? But if you if you care only about the theme park industry, you could ask that question specifically if you're a theme park, right? So that might be a, that might be it. Yeah. All right. Good point. But I'd add to that also that remember that you know obviously going to Universal or Disney World is going to be a discretionary income choice. Right. It's you know going is not a commodity like you know food and lodging. So they may be looking to anticipate not some other which if your personal finances are down, but whether you think that they might be down. So. And that's really interesting because if you look at Universal Orlando, especially with them opening Epic Universe, you know, springish of next year, you know, the the there's a, a big election in the United States in November, right around the time when they're really going to want people to start planning those trips. <laughs> and no, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> really, and it's gonna that. yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see. All right, anyway, all right. Uh, our friend Kevin sent in a Disney Plus survey about the show Echo, which I didn't even know was a thing. And we don't normally focus on Disney Plus here, um, but I thought this one question was interesting because the way it was asked could also be used for theme park attraction. And the question is this: Why haven't you watched Echo? And some of the reasons that they uh, that they list, and you can select all that apply. I'm unfamiliar with the character. I'm not a fan of the character. The key art or image didn't interest me. The description didn't interest me. The storyline didn't interest me. I didn't know Echo was available to watch yet. I'm waiting for all episodes to become available. It looks boring. It doesn't seem like it's for families. The characters don't interest me, and so on. But I love this because... A couple of the first choices are the the thumbnail image didn't appeal to me, the description didn't interest me, and if you're a if you're a theme park and you want people to go on rides, often if you've got the app right, the only thing that people have is a tiny little thumbnail and a very short description. Just to provide a teeny bit of background here, what was interesting about Echo, which again limited series from Marvel for Disney Plus, this is the first time that Disney Plus decided to take a Marvel series and opposed to a new episode every week, dropped the five episodes that were created all at once. And not only Mm. that, but they dropped them uh, in the middle of January, which, you know, anybody who knows, you know, how Hollywood operates, January is kind of the month you you drop things that you don't have all that much confidence in. So, yeah, but at the same time, wow, I... You know, I, I, I think you're, you're on to something there with the tiles and, and that sort of thing. You know, that, that's definitely applicable to, to theme parks and the whole notion of, but how do you pick, you know, you have to pick an image that someone can look at on their phone. Right. And make a decision, you know, based on that tiny graphic. You know, that's tough. Think about the number of people who consume video content on their phones or on tablets or, you know, any, any mobile device other than a TV. Those sorts Which of decisions. Which is just mind-blowing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's just mind-blowing. You know, the producers in good faith are spending, you know, $100 million on a, on a series like Echo. And it's just dumped in and everyone deciding whether they want to watch it or not based upon that teeny tiny image on their smartphone. Yeah, but we've, we've talked about this internally, how people on YouTube will sometimes start with the thumbnail and work backwards to content. Yeah, for ideas. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting how behaviors have changed. All right, we've got a couple of uh, listener questions. Uh, I'll start with this one. Back in September, our friend Aaron wrote in 
asking for some advice on a Disney Cruise Line potential discount. And I'll give you guys the original email and then the follow-up. So the original email back in September was this. My family of four, kids will be 7 and 11, is booked on our first ever cruise in February of 2024. We currently have a Category 5B room booked on Deck 6, midship of the Disney Magic for a seven-night Western Caribbean cruise. But for a savings of roughly $3,000, we could cancel that reservation and book a veranda guarantee room. So for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, with Disney Cruise Line, uh, Disney will uh, often give you like a, a random room within a specific category at a significant discount if you're willing to do it. And they're called GTY. Uh, so there's like inside guaranteed staterooms. They won't let you pick the specific room or even the deck. All they'll tell you is, yeah, you'll get an inside stateroom. And they have them for um, for rooms with verandas. They have them for rooms with uh, you know, interior rooms. And they have rooms uh, for rooms with uh, portals as well. And so, uh, so Aaron asked, what are the odds that if we opt for a VGT room, that's the discount code, we will have a bad enough experience that we'll regret not spending an extra $3,000? As a DCL novice, I feel unprepared to take this cable without a bit more knowledge. So she wrote in and I responded with this. And I said, uh, and I know uh, every one of you DCL veterans is screaming right now in unison, take the GTY, right? I can hear you all. And my advice to Aaron was absolutely to take the GTY, GTY offer. And I said, I thought all Cat 5B cabins are between Deck 5 and 8 of the Magic. So the worst case scenario she would have for a GTY is she's on Deck 5. And that would mean another three decks of stairs or elevators when you want to go to Cabanas of the Pool, but three less flights to go to dinner. So if the choice is a Cat 5B or taking the $3,000 in the stairs, then to paraphrase Douglas Adams, I for one could use the exercise, right? <laughs> and this morning, Aaron, who is actually on the cruise right now, wrote in from the magic to say this. We rebooked the Veranda GTY room and ended up with a Cat 5A room on Deck 7 midship. It has been utterly fabulous. Thank you for the great advice. My husband actually said out loud, I would do this again. Your advice to take the stairs was solid. And oof, that cabana's breakfast buffet. Yeah. <laughs> Good, good. I'm glad that worked. Yeah, three grand is a lot of uh, a lot of massages, right? So, that it is. All right. Also, our, our friend uh, BioReconstruct wrote in to ask Jim Scholl how the Magic Kingdom Utilidors play into decisions about what to do with the Tomorrowland Speedway, taking into account that not much, if any, of the actual Utilidor tunnels themselves are directly under the Utilidor. So uh, Jim and Jim and for everyone else, I put in the show notes um, a map of the Magic Kingdom, like an aerial photograph. Uh, and then I superimposed on that a translucent um, plan of the Utilidor showing where they fall. It's not exactly a one-to-one uh, match because the Utilidor map is sort of idealized. It's very, very close. So Jim Scholl. Yeah, that beautiful, yeah, that beautiful uh, violet tone of the Utilidor map. Yeah. Uh, really shows you where, it, you know, the path of it travel is. Uh, but let's think a moment for about the Utilidor and what its purpose was in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, it's not really for guest travel. In fact, guests should not be down there at all, although occasionally one would be chased out because why not? <laughs> uh, you know, it's down there to service the restaurants and retail, you know, for, for mostly. Uh, and the reason is because, you know, they didn't want to see people, you know, schlepping trash or food or plush across the park area itself. They wanted it to magically appear inside the restaurants and the retail. Uh, and also it gave an opportunity for the guest cast members to discreetly disappear and enter the guest areas. You know, like, for example, the cast member who plays Alice, well, she doesn't go down a rabbit hole. She simply walks through a swing door, steps down a staircase, and then once downstairs, works to avoid the tr- service vehicles down there in in those tunnels. Oh, oh, and also we need to keep in mind that the utilidor system, well, it's not a tunnel system actually at all. It's really just the first floor of the Magic Kingdom. Because when the Disney company bought all that swampland, they made a decision to build uh, their first theme park on that swampland. And as a result, they had to build a first level. So what you conceive is, or call the Utilidor system, it's really not. It, what it is, in fact, is the first floor of the Magic Kingdom. And you, the guest, walk on the second level, the second floor, the guest floor, to all of the ride shows and attractions. I mean, personally, I've walked around the Utilidors many a time. And what's notable about that system is the system is level. I mean, it's basically a straight line. I mean, there's a little bit of ups and downs for drainage and such. But as a result, that means the places like the Speedway, which is actually lower than the guest pathway, 
is really level with the Tilador Tunnel right next to it, which is a long extended way to say there are a lot of civil engineers at WDI who earn their living. He's not wrong. I, I, I just remember when, when we did the gingerbread challenge back in 2022 and, and you came fully dressed to, to, to do the Autopia portion of that. When you sit in, we sat in the stands and watched you go around the raceway. We were definitely looking down at the track there. Um, yeah, the uh, the Tomorrowland Speedway is not a level track. There's uh, there's valleys and hills in it, and I guess the Jim Schull, you're saying the valleys that the, at its lowest point, at uh, their lowest point, are roughly equivalent to the height of the Utilidor. Okay, so that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, they are. And and the, another t- note is the the only real time that there are any significant ramps inside the Utilidor, or is when that Utilidor empties to back of house. So, for example, I remember wandering around doing a work session in the Utilidor one day. And my eyes adjusted to the semi-darkness. And I went up a ramp trying to get out of the Utilidor system. And I popped out behind the old 20K subride. And I tell you, I was blinded by the light <laughs> just trying to get out of there. But, you know, essentially, once you're down there, it's even in level surface. All right. Good to know. Thank you for that, Jim. I appreciate it. All right. And Josh writes in with this question about the Enchanted Tiki Room. He says, the, the artist Shag recently posted that Disney decided not to release a tiki mug he designed for Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room one of my favorite attractions because of cultural appropriation. My question is this, did that much change about cultural appropriation in the last few months? Was the design of Shags that significantly different or was it a matter of Disney not wanting to work with the artist? All right, so I mean, the, the cultural appropriation rationale is entirely possible. Uh, Disney's done a lot of work in Adventureland to change some of the original scenes, tons of work in Pirates, for example, major show scene changes in Jungle Cruise. And the Enchanted Tiki Room is in that category of things I like to call uh, we all know better now. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see a theme change for Tiki Room, not in the near future, but I think it's got to be on someone's list. And I think that's what it is. It's like we, they I, I think they might think that they've mined that particular attraction as much as they can uh, and don't want to do anything else going forward. Well, I mean, it, it's also worth noting, I've got a copy here in hands right now of Walt's People, Volume 28. And um, uh, Jim Corkus, uh, the, the late Disney historian, did an interview with Brandon uh, Keela. And he was the gentleman who did a lot of the work on Trader Sam's Grog Grotto. And, uh, you know, and they, they talk about that, you know, the notion of, as they were working on it, even then, you know, to the effect of, you know, we're in the process of actually taking Trader Sam out of the, you know, the attraction. Uh, and in fact, they, they replaced it with that whole, you know, <laughs> monkeys overrun his store, but no Trader Sam thing. I mean, uh, this is kind of an ongoing situation at Disney. And the no, I mean, it, 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 to be honest, it's entirely possible that, the, you know, suddenly cultural appropriation. I mean, when you think about uh, just in the news lately, that, you know, is it the British Museum that's agreed to return, you know, hundreds of artifacts that, you know, were taken from Egypt you know, a hundred years more ago, but you know the whole notion. I mean, the only reason why the pyramids aren't in uh, aren't in, aren't in London is because they're too heavy to carry. <laughs> we all know it. True. Well, true. Yeah, yeah. The, the blocks don't fit in your carry-on <laughs> luggage one at a time. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I would not I would not be surprised to see a thematic change for Enchanted Tiki Room. I don't think it's a huge thing right now, and I don't think Disney uh, has the money or the focus for that. They've got other things, but uh, if you look at the original vision for Adventureland, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but it was kind of like great white hunter view of of the tropics. And, you know, that time has passed. So we know better now. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it change. I don't think it's anything to do with Shag, though. I mean, I think Disney still oh, likes no, no, him. No, 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 they've done a, Disney they've done a ton of work with him, yeah. Love yeah. Shag. Oh, and by the way, uh, it you know, it, it, if you want more information about Disney and the Tiki Room, there is a wonderful new book by Ken Bruce called Before the Birds Sang Words, which is literally the history of how the Tiki Room came together. In fact, we should we should bring Bruce on the show. This has stories I've never heard before about the Tiki Room. Does he have anything about how uh, uh, United States Army missile technology was adapted for the show? Like, do we, <laughs> do we all need like top, cer- top secret? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Literally, all 
Exactly, the Poseidon <laughs> missile and singing birds. So listen, try and get them on, and then in the meantime, I'll ensure that all of our listeners have the required clearance, security clearance. <laughs> there we go. There to we hear go. the show, and okay. maybe we should, that should take a couple weeks, right, Tops? And then okay. we'll, you'll be fine. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right, folks, while we're working on that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and Jim, tell us what it's like when Disney needs to overhaul a major attraction that sits in the middle of a running theme park. We'll be right back. And we're back. All right. As we talked about in the news portion of the show, we just learned that the Walt Disney World version of Tiana's Bioadventure will be opening in the summer of 2024. And given that Florida's version of Splash Mountain closed back on January 23rd of 2023, so like 56 weeks ago, give or take, uh, from when the show was airing, it seems like an awfully quick turnaround for an attraction redo, especially for something as complicated as a flume ride. But as our guest today, veteran Imagineer Jim Scholl, will explain... Imagineering had a distinct advantage going into the Tiana's Bioadventure project, and that had a lot to do with where Splash Mountain was built in the Magic Kingdom back in the early 1990s. Right, Jim? Uh, you are not wrong. No, actually, uh, I'll add to that is the Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain, the one that the first one, the first Splash Mountain that opened to guests back in July of 1998. Well, it had one big advantage, and that was that the entire show building, the big part of the show, well, that all backed up to the back of house area. Beyond that show building, well, there's a parking lot, Len. There's nothing out there. And so, you know, yesterday's parking lot became tomorrow's construction uh, zone when they went in to start doing the work to change Splash Mountain to Tiana, Tiana's Bayou Adventure. Uh, anyway, it made it possible to for the Imagineers to transform the ride uh, into what? Now we're saying about 18 months, give or take. Yeah, so, but anyway, if you're trying to transform a show building, it really does help if you can have one that's simply back of house accessible. Uh, but that's not always the case, unfortunately. I mean, I'll give you a prime example. When you go and you take a moment and look at Sleeping Beauty's castle at Hong Kong Disneyland, well, when the Imagineers there announced to the world that they were going to transform that structure from what it was to the castle of magical dreams. And they made that announcement in November, 2016. Well, they had a problem because that icon, the castle, which traditionally is in the center of the park everywhere else in Hong Kong is guess what? It's in the center of the park. And so that caused one or two heartaches. How long did it take to open? Oh, good grief. Uh, if you add in the pandemic from COVID and a couple times that the park closed, total, total, it was about four years to complete. Oh, and it didn't officially open to the public until November of 2020. Now, it's important to note here that when Sleeping Beauty Castle at Hong Kong Disneyland was transformed in the Castle of Magical Dreams, it wasn't just a case of sticking a few towers on the top of the centrally located structure. During that four years, the Imagineers added a bippity-boppity boutique to the building, not to mention building an amphitheater out front where guests could then stand and watch a new nighttime show at that park. And and let's not forget about all the infrastructure that's necessary to support a new nighttime show. I mean, we're talking fountains, projection booths uh, for the projection mapping, fireworks launching points, and of course, then a control booth where they, they, they can then run the whole show. Right, and there's an important reason for that because, again, Hong Kong Disneyland's castle was originally based upon the Anaheim Castle, but that's a long time ago, and they didn't have back in that day projection mapping, fireworks launched off the, the roof, uh, control boost, projections, lasers, all of the above. But when they came at time to transform the castle in Hong Kong, they had to bring all of that toolkit of parts to the table, including creating that new moat with uh, the fountain system and the amphitheater for guests to go and watch the show. Oh, and not to mention the fact that in Anaheim, there was no show directly in front of the castle. So when the cast members walked out, they, you know, they could simply walk out through the gates. You can't do that in Hong Kong Disneyland because if cast members are walking out through the gate to do their show, 
Well, where do the guests go? So it was part of the problem they had to create a new bypass on either side of the Hong Kong castle for guests when the show was active for them to be blocked from the normal way into the castle and take the side uh, pathways. So they had a lot of stuff they had on their plate to fix, figure that one out. It, worth noting here that when this castle was first designed and, you know, or the park was proposed in 98, uh, you know, again, the whole notion was uh, this is what? Walt's classic park again, right? Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, what's amazing about that was because they wanted to replicate uh, Walt's classic park and Walt's classic ca uh, castle, what they did was they went back to the warehouse because all of the original blueprints for the castle were they were hand-drawn on vellum. And so oh. I would find reasons to make excuses to go to the document center daily to go, ooh, what might they have found today? One time <laughs> I got into deep, deep trouble because they had rolled out the original drawings for the Columbia and not just the Columbia, but page after page after page of all of the ropes and instructions on how to draw and tie the ropes. Really? Because they went out. Oh, yeah. They found somebody who knew how to tie ropes on a classic clipper ship. And they brought that person in and they stood over the shoulder of the architect who drew hand-drawn on these vellum, the original drawings. So I got into big trouble because I just kept finding my, my day being occupied more and more and more by being down there in document control, looking at all of the treasures they were bringing out of the warehouse. I respect the fact that, uh, Jim, you were uh, body searched when you uh, when you left that because I, same thing for me. Like, I, I couldn't be trusted and stuff like that. So, no, 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 no. It is, it is vellum. I, it, you know, they, the, the guard didn't mention the fact that I'd put on a few pounds as I was leaving that day. And it's, it's vellum because vellum doesn't stretch or shrink, right? Vellum remains a constant size. Well, it does. But unfortunately, the problem with having vellum is. You know, that was those drawings for a park that opened 55. Well, those were being drawn back in 53, yeah. 52. Yeah. The 60 years and old. Let me yeah. point out, yeah, they were built without computers, which now they were going to use. They were built without BIM or any of the technologies that they would use for construction. And by the way, they were being built in Hong Kong with different building codes. So the way that you wanted to build a castle in Anaheim back in the 1950s you couldn't even begin to think of using those tame construction techniques for the new castle that was to be built in Hong Kong. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, construction techniques have to have changed in 60 years, right? Oh, there's that. And also the fact that, well, there's a problem with Hong Kong. You know, some would say it's a glory, but Hong Kong Disneyland was built on the South China Sea, which, oh, by the way, gets monsoons, kind of like the hurricanes that you have in Florida. But the monsoons would come out of the South China Sea. And if the castle had been built the way Anaheim's was, which was, you know, a little bit of light steel, but, you know, predominantly wood and plaster. Plaster over chicken wire. Know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. You know, it's basically really reinforced paper mache, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, bits and pieces of that would be flying over to the, uh, yeah, to the mainland. To Kowloon yeah. anytime. You know, it wouldn't have lasted. So the option is, you know, to follow the construction trends that they had to, which, and so that meant they had to build the Disneyland Hong Kong castle out of poured concrete and structural steel. A lot of the rest of the park is also built that way as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the fact is that you have to follow the building codes. And, you know, if no one else, LegCo, who is, well, that stands for Legislative Council of Hong Kong, and they were the Walt Disney Company's partners in the construction of Hong Kong Disneyland. Well, they were initially very, very happy with having the uh, a copy of the Sleeping Beauty Castle uh, built for their new park, which was going to open in September of 2005. Which you, know, you can understand. I mean, think about it. You know, the, the Magic Kingdom of Florida and Tokyo, uh, they share a castle, Cinderella Castle. So, you know, the fact that Hong Kong had the same castle as Anaheim uh, shouldn't have been that big a deal. Well, it shouldn't have been that big a deal. But the reality just over the horizon was another castle in another park that was going to be opening not that far in the future. And that was going to be the Shanghai Disneyland. And that project, that park, was going to be, well, three times the size of Hong Kong Disneyland. And as a result, when LegCo found out about this, well, suddenly they became less and less enthusiastic or satisfied with the idea that their park, which was going to have as their icon, a copy of the castle in Anaheim, 
was now going to be the castle that they were going to have to live with. Oh, it's a, it's a matter of national pride now. Yeah, yeah. Bigger is better in this case. You know, we go on from there. You know, when the Imagineers went to Legco a couple of times and said, well, how would you like us to build a copy of something? Let's say Star Tours and Hong Kong Disneyland. You know, and they make all the arguments. Oh, it's hugely popular. It's in Paris. It's in, you know, Tokyo. It's in Anaheim. It's in Orlando. You know, Lechko's response was, oh, we, we thank you very much, but we'd like something new. And that became the operative term. Give us something new. We want the new. And that's why, well, maybe not the only reason, but a lot of it was that's why Hong Kong Disneyland features in their Tomorrowland, the Iron Man experience, which is an upgraded simulator ride, just like Starters, which opened then finally in January of 2017. Oh, that's super interesting. So, uh, and before Starters got added in 2017, uh, didn't Hong Kong Disneyland also get a number of other expansions like the first was the first toy story land no they got the second, second toy one. story land the very first one was over in toy story right, Playland, Playland, which yeah. opened in paris but uh hong kong got the second which opened really very very close just a year after and then a uh, grizzly gulch in 2012 and then mystic point was when uh that was in may 2013 and let me point out there that both grizzly gulch and mystic point were new one-of-a-kind attractions and mini-lands, which have yet to open in any other, any other park. So Hong Kong not only got the first one of those, they, as of now, have the only one of those. Yeah, that's impressive. Okay, if we could get back to the Castle of Magical Dreams. What I've always heard about this project is one of the reasons that Hong Kong Disneyland's original castle was changed from a clone of Disneyland's Sleeping Beauty Castle, which is only 77 feet tall, to the Castle of Magic Dreams, which is 177 feet tall, is because this theme park needed a far larger surface to present a projection mapping show on. Is there any truth to that story? Well, there's a lot of truth to that story, Jim. Not It's not the only reason, but it is a lot of truth. And again, we have to go back in the 1950s, Disneyland's castle, well, that was before projection mapping even existed. So it was not a preferred surface. And when they do projection mapping in Anaheim, they do it on the castle, but they also do it on Small World and their Main Street because they're looking for big flat screens to do their projection mapping on. It'll never happen. But if in a perfect world, if they were going to rebuild Disneyland's castle in Anaheim, I'll bet you they would build it back as a bigger castle. But anyway, it, it is important to note here for a moment that Disney's been using projection effects inside of its attractions well, since the mid-1990s. And I want to say Space Mountain in Paris, which was the original one from the Earth to the Moon, uh, it had a projection effect. When you went up the lift hill in lift B inside the mountain, they had a projected uh, moon that changed. And that was a projection effect. It was not projecting a mapping because, again, it didn't exist at that time wasn't there wasn't there another one when did the magic the memories in you uh, come out at the magic kingdom your memory is better than mine that's you know if we're talking about the type of show that they now do at hong kong disneyland on the side of the castle of magical dreams long title uh it uses projection mapping and fountains and fire and lasers and mist screens and fireworks i could go on okay all day. now now if i remember correctly and in fact it was our our recent guest on the show dave bossert who was once telling me about this that that the first show that i mean the original projection show uh, was at the Magic Kingdom. What is it? Uh, help me out here, Lynn. Magic, the memories, and you, right? Uh, January yeah, 2000, 2011? Okay, got it. And supposedly for the 20th anniversary of uh, Disneyland Paris, they put together uh, Disney Dreams. But again, but again, it was uh, just as Jim described. It wasn't just projection mapping. It was uh, fountains and lasers and fireworks and fire and mist screens and all that. By the way, I, uh, I saw Happily Ever After this weekend with Hannah, and we stood basically right in front of the castle. And the interesting thing for me there was even standing right in front of the castle, there's so much going on with the projection mapping. Like every every room in the castle is basically telling its own little mini story. It's almost impossible. In fact, it probably is impossible to understand everything that's going on in all of those projection scenes 
in the castle in one show. Like, it's impossible to focus. You know, what's interesting, if we, if we now jump to the Enchanted Storybook Castle for uh, Shanghai Disneyland, this was the first castle that was designed. Remember, this park opens in 2016. So, you know, we're five years into, you know, you do these projection shows at the parks. And so this was the first show, or the first castle that was deliberately built going in, going, we're going to do projection shows on this thing. We're going to show movies on this castle. There yeah. we go. Well, and the interesting thing about that is, you know, when they did the first projection show there in Paris, that was the first one. So anytime you kind of kick the wheels or test drive an idea, you really don't know how well it's going to be received. In the case of Paris, it was hugely successful. And so all parks, as they always do, say, oh, that worked over there. I want me one of those. However, they were still only working with the existing facilities that they had. Now, in the case of Hong Kong, they had a do-over. So they knew that they could go back in there and take that, well, you know, Disneyland Paris castle that's 160 feet tall going down the list. Cinderella's is 189 feet tall, but, but Hong Kong's is only 77 feet tall. And that's not a very big projection screen for anything you want to do. So one of the, uh, you know, the virtues of rebuilding the castle there in Hong Kong was that they could real build a very, very big projection screen. Now, uh, before we close up here today, can you please talk about Lentau Peak, the, the real mountain that looms up behind Hong Kong Disneyland and how that actually impacted how tall the Imagineers decided to make the Castle of Magical Dreams? Yeah, well, actually one of the problems, you know, from the get-go in Hong Kong was the original Anaheim Castle. Well, the very top spiral is t just below the peaks of Lentau and that entire mountain range. I mean, when the fan community first saw the uh, you know, world of Arendelle, which just opened in Hong Kong, they went nuts over the fact that just behind North Mountain, there's another mountain range. Now, you know, that just really works well with that story of Frozen. But in the case of the original Hong Kong castle, having a mountain range looming over your original Anaheim cute little castle didn't make it look exquisite or uplifting or monumental or impressive, it made it look kind of puny. So this, again, was an opportunity to build a castle that would then be in the foreground and break over the top of Lantau Peak, which is admittedly over 3,000 feet tall, not a small object. So as a result, they were able to build something that serviced all their needs and also gave LegCo the bragging rights to having a very large, very unique castle that was purpose-built for nighttime show there in their park. Oh, and the magic number for the new castle turned out to be 177 feet tall. Okay, and just one final thought before we close up here. You know, that, that you mentioned the Disneyland Paris show and how, uh, you know, Disney Dreams back in 2012 and how that excited people and, you know, that's how projection mapping shows really took off. That new drone show that debuted, Oh, yeah. you know, yeah, can yeah, we yeah. hope oh. for a part two here? Because I would, I mean, if the, people have gone nuts over that show. I would love to see that come stateside in some form. I mean, just to watch the Main Street Electrical Parade in the sky with, a, with again, with a production component on the castle. That's a stunning show, even on YouTube, even on a three by five screen, you know, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, I, I, makes me want to buy a ticket for Paris. Well, if I were going to look at that Magic 8-Ball, the ball tells me that with the opening next year of Epic Universe, Disney's going to be looking for opportunities to have something new to talk about. And after the success of the drone show in Paris, I would not be all that surprised to see a drone show show up at the Magic Kingdom there in Florida next year. I know, uh, I know we've talked in the past about how Disney's lawyers... Um, Whenever they're asked to approve a drone show in Orlando or Anaheim, their first question is always, what do we tell uh, the guests, uh, the family of the guest who gets killed by one of the drones that falls from the sky? And after seeing that drone show, I think my response would be, he died for a worthy cause. Like, have you seen this show? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, sacrifices have to be made, right? Like, 
My, you yeah, know, I was because I was watching this with Laurel, and I'm like, you know, I'm looking at it, and going, and, and obviously this is a joke, right? So don't take this serious. But I'm like, well, how many how many people would die? And then how many of them kind of deserved it anyway? <laughs> like, like I mean, they're not all great people, right? <laughs> all right. You want a, you want an omelet? You gotta break some eggs. I'm just saying, guys. I'm just saying. No, it's, <laughs> okay. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? We've all got a time. We don't know. So. Well, yeah, it was worth it. You know, put that on your my gravestone. I'll stand there. I'll do the test. I'll be test dummy. <laughs> I'll have uh, Tracy put on my gravestone. It was worth it. <laughs> it was worth it. I was, uh, in the, uh, I was having uh, dinner with uh, with Hannah at Boathouse over the weekend. And uh, and the Boathouse has these like 14-ounce, uh, like 75-day prime, aged prime ribs. Uh, prime ribs. And uh, sorry, um, ribeyes. And, you know, I would, the first bite was just so good. I turned to Hannah. I'm like, you know, I could probably talk the cow into understanding how that sacrifice was worth it. Like, like if the cow could taste this, the cow might be okay with the outcome. Like, I, I feel that might be a – there's a chance, right? Anyway. <laughs> so are you promoting cannibalism? Cow cannibalism. <laughs> Yeah, all right, all right. Oh, all right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. Thanks very much to uh, Jim Scholl, our co-host over on Disney Unpacked, for joining us today for this week's uh, Disney Dish. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash Media, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. Jim Hill, what is the next show over at patreon.com slash Media? We're actually walking out uh, our, our a brand new uh, show called uh, Disney Unpacked Picture This, where we take... Uh, a closer look at images uh, that we featured in previous shows, and we're actually circling back to our our, our Mickey's Birthday Land show. And uh, <laughs> if you ever want to see the 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 20k show building, have we got some pictures to share with you? So I'm kind of excited about that. All right, fantastic. All right, and then on the next Disney dish, Jim Hill tells us how the Imagineers handled Walt's decision in January of 1955 to add Tomorrowland to Disney's opening day lineup, giving them just six months to get it done. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenittouringplans.com. Jim Scholl, where can people find you? Well, as always, you can find me at, uh, at Jim Scholl uh, on Twitter, X, and then also at jimscholl.com. Fantastic. And we're produced spectacularly by Eric Chrissy. He'll be singing chorus on the song 13 when Laney plays the Mission Ballroom on Thursday, March 7th, 2024 at the Mission Ballroom in beautiful downtown Denver, Colorado. While Eric's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim and Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Okay, and before you hit the stop button, remember we need. Oh yeah, that, you want me to record that thing for you? Yeah, just so we could take you know that way we send it to Eric and he's got it there. So if you just want to do. Okay, so literally just the one line. Just the one line. So. All right, here we go. All right, Eric, ready? Here we go. Well, interesting. And why would you go with that specific Stone song title? Okay, just one more. Let me and do that we're again. Good. All right. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. And why would you go with that specific Stone's song title? And we're done, gentlemen. That's that's you know. It's Fantastic. Good. By the way, speaking of the All stones, right. have you guys seen the uh the, the TV series? I'm sorry. Yep.